It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. Yeah, he's here. Girl and stuck honest, at the bottom of the top two. I guess I can't crack any higher than that. Well, you're kind of <laughs> stuck. You're really stuck. You know, the gap between second and first, it's just... Yeah, fair it's enough. A lot. It's a lot. I can live uh, with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is episode 198. Numerically, I've, I've again, I'm on a roll here, just being able to count one after another. We're, episode 198, we're going to talk about exercise and your brain. Alternative title, brain gains. Alternative, alternative title, <laughs> BDNF <health>. energy <laughs> or, <laughs> or brain health. Uh, when this goes out, this will be after uh, Halloween. But I, I got to ask you, this is this is what the internet wants to know. What what did you dress up for as, for Halloween? Did Halloween already happen? I mean, I'm just working right now in the hospital. Oh, well, so I think, I think, and again, I'm not, you know, the socialite. Like, I don't have the schedule on like what the what's happening. But I think last night was the pick night for people to go out for Halloween because I think Halloween falls on a Monday. I see. Year, right? So if you say so, I mean, last night my celebrated by being on home call for the uh, for the hospital. So so you dressed up as a as a doctor. <laughs> In sweats, yeah. In sweats, <laughs> great sweatpad energy. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I took a few admissions over the phone, and you know, made it happen. Nice. I volunteered at uh, a local hospital, handed out candy to kiddos. Which this is it's it, this is double purpose. Purpose one: I don't really want to go out for Halloween anyway. Like I just, it's not my scene. Not just because Halloween, just the idea of like going to a bar and spending hours there. It's not for me. Uh, which which is fine. And so if I give people a normal excuse, like, hey, I don't want to do that, invariably it comes back, oh, come on, man, you never go out. But if you say that you're volunteering, handing out candy to kids, nobody says anything negative. In fact, and this is the second reason, there's some social credit there. They're like, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. I didn't know you did that. I'm like, well, I was thinking ahead. What (laughs) you're not telling them is your third reason, and it's to start people getting sick (laughs) in life. Okay, so in my in my you're giving them seed oils. That's right. In my complex, okay, so right at the the concierge desk or whatever, there's like a candy bowl, yeah. and uh, people have pretty much picked through like all the good stuff. All the Reese's are gone, obviously, because that is the choice candy of champions. Yeah, it's uh, like bana- banana laffy taffy is what's left, or some garbage. And like <laughs> and Smarties, and I am a Smarty connoisseur. It's like a mini version of a sweet tart, and that is my pick. Like if I had to pick a like non-chocolate candy to consume, it would be sweet tarts. And if you have to go to the mini version, it's Smarties. I thought about getting a handful of those, bringing them up here, eating them on camera, and then titling this video on YouTube, Doctor Eats Pure Sugar on Camera. <laughs> but then I thought, yeah, the accusations of you're just trying to get everyone sick so you can profit the big, you know, totally. med- medical cabal. <laughs> Maybe next year. Thoughts for next year. Plans uh, to take over the world. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought about going as you, but then I thought that would be a very niche uh, costume. Extremely niche and yeah. nondescript. I, I should, <laughs> if I, uh, if and when this goes up on YouTube, I think it'll go up on YouTube. Just usually don't do the introductions because people are like, we don't care. We want it. We want the information. Uh, Claire last year, it was either last year or it might've been 2020. She went as me and Wow. Killed it. I, I remember kill, that. Yeah, I just I was like, is that me? Did I get some smaller version of me? Oh, interesting. 
other announcements uh, before we get in, into this. Obviously, we have some live in-person learning uh, events coming up, some seminars. So we'll be in LA in a few short weeks. Uh, I think there are two spots left. So if you're listening to this and you're in California, California is accessible to you. You like California. You can get to You don't California. even have to like California. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I mean, whatever. You can just come hang out with us. And you want to come to one of our two-day health and performance seminars. All the crew is going to be there. We do... Uh, yeah, it's basically, I'd say 60% uh, sort of didactic stuff and 40% practical. We're actually lifting, get some hands-on coaching. So that's that's useful. Uh, so that's coming up in a couple of weeks, two spots left. And then we'll be in Miami. Uh, just confirmed, both Dr. Baraki and myself will be there at the pain and rehab seminar, all new from Dr. Derek Miles, Chris Hugan, uh, Chris, uh, uh, Charlie Dixon. And I think, is Cam going to be there? Do you know? I believe he will. I think can't. Yeah, I think the whole crew is going to be there. So that'll be fun. If you guys want some fun in the sun in January, that's the pain and rehab seminar. And then we'll be in uh, Atlanta and Brooklyn in Q1 2023. So you, you can learn about that by clicking the link in the description below. Also, our whey protein is back in stock. Uh, we are also closing out uh, some of our old apparel. So if you go to our website, use the code apparel10, you can take 10% off all the, the apparel because we've got some new stuff dropping soon. We have a new article on the website on ankle sprain, what do. Dr. Derek Miles just published that. So if you got ankle troubles, know somebody with a uh, recent ankle sprain, whatever, that's on the website. And then also some new YouTube videos, including a training vlog. <laughs> I know. I know you're as surprised as I am. You're like, you're still Back training. in one of our spurts, aren't we? <laughs> well, people just, they want, they want, they want that parasocial sort of thing. They just want to see yeah. us do weird stuff with barbells and that's fine. <laughs> My thing is like barbell medicine is obviously not just about us lifting. Right. But it, I would prefer it not be, I yeah. would prefer it not to be in, <laughs> in fact, but, um, yeah, I think people take away some stuff. We'll do some uh, form checks and answer some questions. So if you want your form checks to be reviewed on our YouTube channel, film them landscape, uh, ideally 720p or higher, send them to media at barbellmedicine.com. I'll, if you got to do a link sharing thing, I'll download them. I'll bank them. And if they're useful, you know, you could be on our YouTube channel. <sighs> okay. Anything else going on? You want to talk about the dumbest nope. tweet of the week that you've oh god <laughs> twitter is uh it's going through some things got, at the moment i got one i'm gonna pull this up <laughs> this is uh i believe this is a mark hyman special which uh he's one of the offenders frequent offenders what did he say oh man i got is it. this gonna be like your version of the the quack asylum from the sigma guys you're gonna induct a tweet into the oh do they do that <laughs> At the end of their podcast, they would in, they induct various quacks into their oh yeah. There's a hall quote of fame unquote, hall asylum. Fame. Yes. Hall of shame. <laughs> okay, uh, Mark Hyman, who's a medical doctor, um, and generally just puts out nonsense tweets. I think just to get some traction on on the social medias. He says the perfect diet has one hard rule: eat real food, not food like substances. Can you find a donut in nature? Nope. Can you find an apple in nature? Yes. I mean, at face value, you're like. And if you're being charitable, you kind of get what he's saying. Like, don't eat Franken foods if if you can't if you can avoid them. I guess I, if I'm being charitable, that's what he mean, he's saying. But then it's like, okay, so you're saying what you're really saying literally is if it's found in nature, it's probably good. So arsenic, ricin, poison ivy, all good to consume. <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that what it means? I think you would take issue with that. And also some like engineered, you know, most foods, in fact, almost all foods that we consume are engineered on some level. Right. Not like super, super natural heirloom, fair trade, 
you know. <laughs> type yeah, stuff. I mean, there there are various things that uh, various food items um, that have been modified in some capacity or bred in some mm -hmm. particular capacity for particular properties or outcomes that have had substantial positive impacts on population health. So things are complicated more so than you can convey in a tweet, but that's not what Twitter's for, obviously. <laughs> obviously not. Yeah. The old naturalistic fallacy strikes again. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about brain gains, exercise in your brain. So how does exercise affect brain function in general? And we'll get deep into the weeds on some mechanisms, pathways, et cetera. We'll talk about how does exercise affect cognitive outcomes in people who are otherwise healthy and how does exercise affect cognitive outcomes in those who actually have some sort of uh, pathology going on, whether it's mild cognitive impairment, dementia, Parkinson's, stroke, stuff like that. So let's kick this guy off. How does exercise affect brain function in general? And I think before we get into that, we need to start out with like some terms, definitions, kind of give people a lay of the land, because I'm assuming that our audience is not just a bunch of neurologists listening to this. And if they are, just turn this off. Just, you know, I what? know there's at least one. There's at least one, right? We have one. Is that Remember the strongest came to our Chicago seminar? <laughs> is that the strongest neurologist in the world? I mean, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> did, we, did you ever decide to take credit for as being the strongest hospitalist in the world? Uh, I, I, I don't know that I feel confident enough to take that credit, but, uh, you know, I'm probably, you know, up there. <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Eli Burke? Yeah, he's you a family he medicine hospitals? doctor. He doesn't do any hospitalist work because that would be your biggest no competition. Idea. No idea. And, and Chris Hunt <laughs> is emergency. Is ER, yeah. Mm, I don't know, man. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Think you might have it. Okay, so anyway, uh, if... In order to get into this, like I said, we're going to have to do some background kind of education just to get you guys up to speed here. So let's talk about the structure of the nervous system overall. Uh, so first off, we're going to talk about the neuron, uh, which is my neuroanatomy professor in, when I was getting my master's. Every single time without fail, he called it a neuron. Hmm. And so like I a, went with, a, with an E at the end with an E or... and I went in, I was like, is this like old timey English? Is this like <laughs> the classical spelling or whatever? And I think, yeah, there's neuron with an E and that's a legit pronunciation. But the entire time, my entire master's education, I was like, does he know that it's neuron? Like no E and I'm the idiot. So anyway, uh, a neuron is the main component of the nervous tissue. Uh, it's present in both the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. So those are two main categories of the nervous system overall. The central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system is everything outside of that and includes the autonomic and somatic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is the parasympathetic or the rest and digest portion and also the sympathetic or fight or flight uh, portion of the autonomic nervous system. Somatic, you can just think about stuff that innervates muscles. Um, and in any case, in your brain, you have about 86 billion neurons or neurons. Uh, there are three major types of neurons. One's a sensory neuron, so for conveying sensation. Uh, one is a motor neuron, that is obviously to go to muscles, to contract, relax, stuff like that. And they're interneurons. They do just what they sound like. They connect other ne neurons to neurons. Uh, and basically a neuron is a nerve cell and it's responsible for receiving signals. It's a combination of electrical and chemical signals. And they basically pass the signal along to other neurons or tissues or other sort of end organs or end systems of via synapses, which is a fancy way of saying just like the way they connect 
to those tissues, neurons, etc. The brain structure overall is very complex. And honestly, we could do a year's worth of podcasts and call it like marble medicine, neuroanatomy, and just, you know, barely scratch the surface. But for this podcast, you'll need to know a few terms. Uh, one is the uh, cerebrum. The cerebrum is the largest part of the brain, and it's separated into two hemispheres and four different lobes, uh, temporal, occipital, uh, frontal, uh, parietal. Right. I was like, wait, the f- <laughs> where did the fourth one go? <laughs> yeah. So when you think about the if you, the classic picture of the brain, that is the cerebrum, uh, that little thing hanging off the back of it. That's the cerebellum. Um, in any case, the cerebrum is the largest part. The outermost layer of the cerebrum is a relatively thin cerebral cortex made up of gray matter uh, in that is mostly consists of the cell bodies of the neuron or neuron. Uh, and then uh, this overlies a much thicker a a portion of white matter. And that's mostly the axons, which are these long, spindly, thin structures that transmit signals from the cell body of the neuron to other areas. And so that was your 60-second sort of neuroanatomy class to get you primed and prepped for this podcast. Anything you want to add to that, Austin? I think that's good enough. And if any other new terms come up along the way, we can define them at the time. Hey, here's a question uh, kind of related. I know when you do your pain lecture, at the, uh-huh. uh, the seminar, you draw a cross section of a, you, you draw a brain, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you use two hands or one hand? One hand. Oh, okay. Do you draw the spinal cord, like a hemi section of the spinal cord? Yes. You use one hand or two hands? One. That's how we know you're not a neuroanatomist. <laughs> they, do oh, yeah. two, they do two hands. They go, whoop. Like, <laughs> and I was like, bro, your non-dominant hand is pretty, pretty good there. Okay. So... We're going to talk about what does exercise do to the brain structurally to start out with. And again, just to be pedantic, because that's what we do here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, exercise is not the same thing as physical activity. Rather, exercise is a subclassification of physical activity that is planned, structured, repetitive, uh, and has a final or an intermediate objective uh, for the improvement or maintenance of one or more components of physical fitness. So all I want to get across by saying that is that exercise is not walking to the fridge, walking around your house, putting away dishes. Those would be, you know, activities of daily life. It's physical activity. Sure. But it's not exercise. Uh, in any case, uh, we just want to be very clear when we talk about what exercise is. And if you look at the current guidelines, uh, 2018 physical activity guidelines for adults, they actually define this as the planned, structured, repetitive movement that lasts five minutes or longer. It used to be 10 minutes. Now it's five minutes. So, you know, if you go for a walk and it's four minutes and 59 seconds, I don't know that that qualifies, but anyway, you got to draw the line in the sand somewhere. So we're talking about planned, structured, repetitive movement that has the objective of improving one or more qualities of physical fitness. In any case, how does exercise affect the brain's structure? So the overarching theme here is that exercise increases neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the capacity of the nervous system to modify its organization. Uh, so these, this can include the consequence of many different events, including uh, normal development and maturation of the organism. So as you grow, you gain and lose uh, different neurons. Um, when you acquire new skills, you, that's like motor learning, for example, um, you develop new uh, 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 neurons, you lose other ones, new connections to different neurons, uh, or after damage to the nervous system, all of these things would, uh, be representative of neuroplasticity. So a change in structure and or function, 
like you're making new cells, new synapses, blood vessels, changes in brain volumes, uh, neurotransmitter and neurotrophin levels, et cetera. All of that, it gets lumped under the sort of umbrella term neuroplasticity. So when we look in the data here, multiple studies, I mean, gosh, when I dug in here, I was like, there's a surprising amount of like data here, particularly at the molecular level. And I'm like, how are they sampling this? Are they like getting into the different cerebrovascular structures and like taking a sample? What, wait, what was that? What's that study? I think it's, it has to do with cortisol. You, like a, you do like a petrosal sinus sampling of <laughs> something for like ACTH. Oh, sure. Yeah. For, uh, I mean, I am not involved in the kind of decisions where you're going in through somebody's face to sample that, that vein, but I suspect, <laughs> I suspect maybe if you're working up like an Addison's disease or not an Addison's, uh, Cushing's. a Cushing's disease sort yeah. of situation, that may be, that may be something that's involved. The petrosal sinus sampling. I was like, wait, not what? something that I touch very often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of data here. Um, and then the overarching theme here as far as structure is that Mult these these studies show an increase in gray matter in multiple different regions of the brain. The most commonly reported areas are the frontal and prefrontal cortexes, cortices rather, which are primarily uh, responsible for like executive function, so high level decision making, task shifting, uh, sort of thinking about different problem complex problems, and then also the hippocampus. Hippocampus uh, being primarily involved in memory and learning and things of that nature nature. And most of the studies that are done are done on older individuals. Um, so people, uh, after their fourth or fifth decade, uh, who are neurologically intact and I'm not calling people in their fourth decade old. I'm just saying this is where most of the studies were done. And a lot of that has to do with, because we actually start losing some brain volume in the third decade of life. So they don't, people don't really care and scientists don't really want to investigate people who already have like maxed out their brain volume, like mid twenties. So they want to see like what happens in older individuals. And usually they compare some sort of exercise. A lot of it, as you may expect is aerobic exercise compared to stretching. Um, so they don't just have people not do anything. It's some other sort of physical activity, but it's not exercise. Uh, and there are some resistance training studies. Uh, the good thing about most of this data is that they are typically long, and this is something you don't see much in exercise science, just in general, most exercise science studies are four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, but a lot of these neuro, uh, neurological studies are six months or longer, or they'll do the intervention for six months and then measure people at one year, two years, which is kind of nice. And, uh, most of these tend to be randomized controlled trials. Like, no, oh, we're going to have people exercise and then see what happens to them compared to the control group rather than like, okay, this group they exercise and this other group doesn't let's take a look at what, ha what their brain differences are. There are studies like that certainly, but those are less interesting. In fact, uh, Rhonda Patrick just reported something on, you know, the exercise grows your brain, <laughs> it, which you can make that argument that it increases brain volume, but not from the exact study that she quoted. The study that she quoted was a a, a cross-sectional study where basically they looked at the brain volumes of people who exercise versus people who don't. And it's like, that's not what the study says. So let's, let's keep it on the straight and narrow here. Um, also, so in addition to this sort of increase in gray matter, again, that's that thin layer that's mostly neuronal cell bodies on the outside of the brain. Uh, there tends to be a connection here with the amount of fitness gained almost a dose dependent relationship where as the amount of fitness increases, the increase in gray matter kind of rises, uh, along with that. And in fact, one of the studies that, uh, I cited in the, uh, resources that are linked in the description below, 
The quote is, we found that greater improvements in aerobic fitness level over the one-year interval were associated with greater increases in hippocampal volume for the left and right hemispheres, which this kind of ties back into uh, the relationship between fitness acquisition and health promoting benefit. We've seen that with high blood pressure. We've seen that with glucose homeostasis, glucose control, stuff like that. It's like the fitter you get, it seems like that portends a better outcome with respect to some of these health promoting effects. We talked uh, about that recently, how some of these effects that we see may just may also just be indicative of the, the person's general responsiveness to exercise. Like in other words, they're, they're manifesting responses in various ways such that the exercise is simultaneously causing all these things. And they tend to be, you know, potentially higher responders, so to speak, rather than the aerobic adaptations themselves driving something in the brain as like an intermediate step. It's probably simultaneously caused by all of this stuff in numerous ways, many of which we don't understand or will never understand. hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I, I think, man, I don't obviously don't remember the exact podcast and it may not have actually been a podcast. It may be like a seminar clip or something like that, where I, I was trying to make the case that, man, I just want people to exercise. And even if they aren't getting stronger, or even if they aren't improving in cardiorespiratory fitness, which I would prefer if they were, that's still net benefit. Now I'd probably revamp that and say, the program that you're on should be generating demonstrable improvements in fitness because I think that that's a hedge towards improved health benefit. And it doesn't mean it has to be super fast, you know, strength improvements doesn't have to be super fast cardiorespiratory fitness, but if it's, uh, not improving either of those things, man, I, I don't know that that has, uh, as strong of a connection to health promoting benefits than, than a program that does result in those things. Yeah, it, it's as we've talked about before with respect to non-responders that quote unquote non-responders that you may just not be measuring enough variables, but you can feel more confident that you are getting, you know, wider ranging effects uh, if the more variables that you see that are improving. So I, I agree as far, insofar as you said that it would be kind of more of a, a hedge to improve health. Um, although again, it, it's I, I would not. Uh, necessarily say that if your program is not generating adaptations, that it's worthless for you in that there's probably some physiologic mm -hmm. parameter that is improving or adapting in some way. We just may not be detecting not it, measuring it. Yeah. but if we're, but if we're seeing improvements in various things, then we can feel more confident that we're, you know, getting where we want to be. Yeah. So overall from a structural thing, yeah, gray matter is going to increase. There's some evidence also that white matter uh, increases. I just want to be clear that that doesn't necessarily correlate with clinical outcomes that you actually care about. So for example, if you're, if a person has mild cognitive impairment and we'll go through into that later, uh, I don't necessarily care if their gray matter or white matter increases. I care that their cognitive impairment is improved or otherwise prevented from getting worse. Does that make sense? Like we're just the structure, their actual, function. their actual function, their actual function, their actual, you know, thinking cognition, ability to do complex tasks and things like that. I mean, I think that part of the issue is that, you know, neuroscience as a, as a field is extremely complex and as, you know, advanced quite a bit, but the tools that we have to study it, like, you know, just as an example, you mentioned, you know, upfront that we have something like 85, 86 billion neurons, right? Neurons. Neurons, excuse me. <laughs> but those are connected by something like 100 trillion synapses. Like yeah, the, yeah, con yeah. the connections that we have, those are the, those are what are, are, are seem to be critically important and are the things that are the most modified in this process of, as you mentioned, neuroplasticity, building new connections, pruning off old connections, things like that. And it's like our ability to very 
accurately and and precisely you know detect these things is limited by the you know uh, diagnostic tools that we have available like the idea of using certain kinds of brain imaging techniques i mean have you seen what some of the first ct you know the first head ct scan <laughs> when that came out it was a horrific pixelated mess mm-hmm. and now we have definitely more you know higher resolution stuff and functional mri looking at blood flow and things like that but um, the tools that we have to research this stuff to some degree present an inherent limitation for our ability to really detect, you know, which connections are happening where and and, and all sorts of other really complicated stuff. I don't, I don't know if you read this book, but a book called uh, Models of the Mind by Grace Lindsay. I read it a year or two ago. She's a computational neuroscientist and kind of walks through the whole history of neuroscience and our understanding and our modeling of this stuff and uh, really uh, through the lens of math mostly. And it was a, a super interesting read as far as how we have figured out what we have so far, but it still sometimes feels like we're just in the dark with a lot of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, like the latest technology, at least that I'm aware of, that they've even moved past this functional MRI to magnetoencephalography. Well, that Mag- sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Basically measuring the magnetic field generated by the electrical activity of neurons. Neurons. Uh, and, yeah, I there's mean, some, there's some smart people out there. I know. I'm like, dang, man, you guys are on a whole nother level. Um, so that's, that's with the structure. So the TLDR of that is, yeah, it does look like uh, various areas of the brain, their actual volume seems to increase secondary to exercise. So that's structure wise. Um, One of the key components to kind of driving that increase and also driving maybe the increased connectivity that Austin was alluding to these uh, improvement in these neuronal circuits has to do with these neurotrophic factors that exercise also tends to increase. One of the big ones that we'll keep coming back to over and over and over and over again is BDNF or brain derived neurotrophic factors. So uh, neurotrophins are growth factors. Uh, that are expressed in the brain and the peripheral tissues, so tissues outside of the brain that regulate many different aspects of the brain cell or the neuron uh, and their function, including things like growth, the type of neuron, the connectivity, repair mechanisms, etc. So BDNF is a specific type of neurotrophin or growth factor, and it has many roles. Its most crucial or most popular role uh, is helping to form connections and circuits from neuron to neuron. Exercise increases levels of BDNF in the hippocampus and other areas of the brain, pretty much regardless of any type of training paradigm, whether it's high intensity, high volume, resistance training, or aerobic training. There does appear to be the sort of dose response relationship with how much BDNF uh, goes up with sort of training volume. Uh, overall. Um, And this is considered to be a partial mediator of the enhancing effect of exercise on learning and memory. Uh, We can measure BDNF in the serum and higher levels of BDNF are associated with both better memory function and larger hippocampal volumes. So we're trying to bridge that gap between structure and function. And as far as like a mechanistic view of why this occurs, it's like, oh, well, exercise drives up BDNF, BDNF signals growth, enhanced connectivity, enhanced sort of uh, uh, efficiency as far as information transfer from neuron to neuron. That's one of the ways that this happens. There's other neurotrophic factors like IGF-1, for example. It's a similar type of mechanism that we think here. So the too long didn't read, or in this case, too long didn't listen. uh, Exercise appears to increase both the size and the amount of sort of growth factors associated uh, with neuron and brain structure uh, sort of development. Um, 
also as a sort of another mechanism that's involved here is just improvement in blood flow. It's like the more blood that's flowing to your brain, uh, improved health of the vascular system that happens sort of from exercise. It has a, another, you know, uh, uh, effect on overall sort of brain function. Um, yeah, there's this other interesting theory. I want to get your take on this Baraki. Okay. So check this out. There's, there's two additional theories. One is this metabolic theory, the idea like if you uh, become well-trained, you exercise or whatever, you're better at not only using fuel, but also liberating energy from, you know, what's needed for exercise. And so you're better able to deliver things like glucose, lipids, et cetera, to the brain. So it has more fuel to operate. What do you, what do you think on that? I don't know, honestly, because I'm, I'm skeptical that our day-to-day brain function is substantially limited by fuel delivery (laughs) to to any significant degree. Yeah. Probably Um, more by blood flow than actual metabolic. And, and most, and, and most people don't have difficulty getting blood flow to their (laughs) brains in general. (laughs) Obviously exercise induces, you know, certain changes during exercise and has some, some long lasting benefits, you know, beyond that phase, as far as whether, you know, the extent to which it relates to, to, uh, glucose delivery, you know, to the brain, I would have to read more about that to see, um, how, how strongly I feel about it, but sure. I'm kind of meh on it. Yeah. At the moment. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was an interesting theory. I'm like, I mean, it plausible, it's plausible, but then I'm like, yeah, how many people are actually having like, are uh, they're under fueling their, their brain. I don't know. The other theory has to do with this uh, uh, thing called cerebral reserve. The idea is that exercise, since it is increasing gray matter or white matter volume, and it is increasing connectivity amongst neurons and refining these neuronal circuits, that you basically have like a higher reserve to pull from if something should happen, if you should start undergoing cognitive impairment, if you should have, you know, some sort of issue. Uh, And so basically you're starting from a higher place kind of like bone mineral density, right? Like when you resistance train, you develop all this bone mineral density and then your decline is maybe not as noticeable or not even noticeable at all during your lifespan because you've got all this reserve. What do you think about that? I don't know, man. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. All right. There's a lot, there's a lot of plausible hypotheses and, 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 um, you know, ways that you could come at this question as far as how you would prove these things becomes more and more difficult. I mean, just like as an example, I think about the, the blood sugar kind of delivery or glucose delivery. It's like, well, I can do a lumbar puncture on somebody and measure how much glucose is in that cerebrospinal fluid, do it all the time. And, uh, you know, most, people like when, when it is low, that is pathologic. That is, that is in the setting of some kind of inflammatory condition or, you know, bacterial meningitis or something like that. But as far as whether, how that would relate to somebody's day-to-day brain function, you know, in the absence of those things, I don't know that we have, you know, evidence that that is a, that there's a relationship there. Yeah. 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 One of the interesting parts about this, uh, that cerebral reserve is that it may like actually mask sort of pathology uh, recognition because you like, don't get to a point where you're actually suffering until you've lost a critical mass of function and connectivity and stuff. It's kind of like sarcopenia. You're like, Oh, you had all this muscle. And so you started, you know, something was happening, but we couldn't detect it because you were compensating so well. Yeah. We see that quite a bit when it comes to evaluating patients for cognitive impairment and dementia, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But I mean, I've been shocked and everybody has a story of this when they have actually 
met a patient and talked to them and, you know, they might hear some jokes and some stories and they're real personable and, and they seem, you know, like they're functioning great. And then you actually put them through a formalized, you know, neurocognitive assessment of some sort. There are various standardized assessments that, you know, clinicians would be familiar with. Um, and then you just end up getting blown away by how poorly they, <laughs> they perform yeah. on this. And it's like their social skills or, you know, whatever that, however they've gotten by to this point, it does very well at masking that in a day-to-day function standpoint. But then you ask them to, you know, do serial seven subtraction from a hundred or, you know, remember a few words like a couple minutes later or name as many things they can think of that start with some letter. And it's just like, they're completely unable to <laughs> to yeah. do that at all, which is remarkable sometimes. I remember in a, at the memory clinic, there was a person who had, he had measured, he had memorized both forms of the mocha like this too. Like, <laughs> and so like whenever the, what is it? Like Montreal, to what end would you do this? That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, well, well, this thing, uh, when I talked to the attending, he's like, you know, if people do worse, they feel like it's a personal failing uh, on their part. And then also like the, end of the idea of living independently, if you have severe, you know, deficits. if somebody's inclined to take away, like you know, responsibilities or rights or things yeah. like that. Sure. Yeah. 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 It gets kind of hairy. Uh, okay. So that's basically a structure, uh, the structural overview of the brain and how does exercise affect the structure kind of, yeah, makes certain areas bigger, more neurons, better connectivity, better, uh, refining process when you learn things and acquire new skills. Some growth factors are increased as well. And that seems to kick off the whole process. Uh, okay. So how does exercise affect different cognitive outcomes in those who are otherwise healthy? And so a lot of people listen to this, uh, you know, are interested, does exercise actually improve academic performance either for themselves or children or, you know, family members, et cetera. Uh, overwhelmingly, the answer here is yes, but we need to, again, come up with some terms here. So uh, we talk about academic achievement and learning. These are two separate but related things. Academic achievement is the extent to which a student, teacher, or institution has achieved their educational goals, commonly measured by examinations or standardized assessments. Uh, learning is the act of acquiring new or modifying and reinforcing existing knowledge, behaviors, skills, values, or preferences, and may involve sense synthesizing different types of information. This is often assessed through recall tasks. So a bunch of data here. I'm not going to like read you guys study after study after study, but one super interesting one is from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is on 10,000, over 10,000 children aged four to 13. Um, this is a review of 26 different studies that had interestingly 26 different exercise protocols. And it's like, if you were a researcher in the space and you're listening to this, you can email me and tell me like why I'm wrong. But it's like, hey, if there's data already out there, why don't you, why don't you guys get together and say, we're going to use the same exercise protocol just to try to suss out maybe some of the details here as far as like dosing, intensity, duration, follow up. You know, that way you just are really trying to tease out some of these nuances here. But in any case, the this uh, meta-analysis and systematic review found that classroom behaviors increased or improved with increased uh, time dedicated to physical education. So this was, there's been this like, back and forth. Like if we increase time dedicated to PE, there's less time in the classroom for mathematics, language, writing, reading, you know, whatever. Uh, it turns out that classroom behaviors improve with increased, uh, time dedicated to physical education. And also when it was integrated with other things like math, uh, for example, test scores also improved. And I always thought this would be interesting. It's like, what if you had like, you were just doing bar math on the test. It's like if somebody's got three reds and, and a yellow, like, what is what is that weight? I don't know. That's how I would do it, but I'm not a math teacher. Um, 
also in studies where they did not actually integrate it, but they just did an increased uh, sort of amount of time dedicated to physical education, math performance improved, reading uh, scores improved, writing scores improved, things like learning foreign languages, et cetera, all seem to improve. And that's in like grade school, right? So this also occurred in college. Now, the study here is a little bit different. Uh, it was uh, over a thousand um, subjects in this one, and the data was collected by the American College uh, Health Association. Um, and they basically reviewed the frequency of strength training uh, uh, episodes and GPA. And basically, more often that people strength train, the higher their GPA was. Now, granted, there can be some selection bias here. It's like, you know, who's filling out these questionnaires and, and whatnot. But I thought that was interesting. It's like these people were spending more time lifting weights and had higher GPA, so less, you know, available time to study. It seemed like, wow, there's some potentially like indirect mechanism here with like, okay, it's maybe exercise is doing something to facilitate learning at higher efficiency. Uh, and then also maybe something to do with like psychological state and, and mood and things of that nature, but probably also some direct stuff. If you get more, uh, better, better blood flow to the brain, you get better, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know. You learn things uh, as far as time management. I don't know. Some some yeah, stuff. It's interesting. I mean, and, and I suspect that there's a, a sweet spot for the amount of physical activity uh, on an individual basis. That probably varies by person and things like that. Um, that would kind of be the right dose for them in the context of what they're trying to learn. And I, and I, you can kind of also think about it in relation to sleep, right? So it's like, you know, people might be sleeping a certain amount. And they may stand to benefit from a learning standpoint, memory consolidation, you know, synaptic pruning, all this good stuff that happens mm -hmm. while you're asleep if they slept a little bit more, even if that meant that they spent a little bit less time studying or in the classroom. Ooh, um, yeah. and, and I think about it similarly from an exercise standpoint, there's probably some parallel, you know, processes that are that are happening there. And there's a sweet spot in terms of dosage that you get incremental increasing benefit with a little bit more, more and more and more exercise, um, even if that detracts from, you know, more dedicated study time or like um, butts in seats, <laughs> classroom <laughs> stuff. Get your butts um, and, then, seats <laughs> and, and, and eventually then there would be, you know, too much such that you wouldn't truly not be doing enough, you know, dedicated classroom work. So, I mean, do you, can you, can you relate to this in your own experience? Cause I think about it myself over my, academic career. And I certainly can both in the context of college stuff when I was studying alongside a lot of training for like competitive swimming when we were swimming eight, nine times a week, lifting two, three times a week, running, you know, another time. And it was like, that was actually kind of tough to, to get what I had to do done um, alongside that volume of activity. And then that volume of activity scaled down quite a bit when it got to medical school, which was helpful because the volume of stuff I had to learn went way up. But even when we were at like peak academic study mode, right? So leading up to step one would be the typical time frame for that. I was still training on schedule every day, like, you know, or like mid, mid afternoon or so I'd be up studying most of the day, go get my train done. And that like, truly, I feel like kept me sane and probably helped me like learn the stuff and, and consolidate it better, so to speak, alongside maintaining a sleep schedule and stuff like that. So I mean, yeah. I felt I felt the benefits of that. I think I would have completely lost my mind and probably done worse if I had not kept a training schedule, just like if I had not maintained a sleep schedule around that time. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a sweet spot because I was going to ask you the like, would you rather, you know, would you, would you rather spend two hours training or two hours studying? You had to pick one or the other. And, and I think it really depends on what's going on like outside of all of that. So for example, if you've studied enough or s some, yeah. then probably training is the answer. But if yeah. you studied none, well, <laughs> sure. the thing that's going to improve your test taking yeah. is you got to be uh, studying 
or you know it same thing it goes right with sleeping right it's yeah. like yep. uh, could you sleep one or two more hours or do you need to study one or two more hours um yeah so i don't know I, it's funny in, in med school that's probably the most i've ever trained like when I, now that I think about it, it's probably the uh-huh. most I've ever like trained per week. Uh, but outside of that, all I was doing was studying pretty much. Right. So I don't know. Step one, <laughs> step one prep was great for me, man. I was like four weeks of all like no class, no tests other than this one looming test that like decides the rest of your whole life. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I was training yeah, two and a half, three hours a day. And then I would study for, you know, five, six hours. And yeah, just did that day in and day out. So, yeah. uh, yeah, overwhelmingly the data here is positive, unfortunately, because all of the, uh, interventions were, you know, heterogeneous, we don't really know the type amount, frequency, timing of exercise that's optimal for sort of academic prowess, um, that remains to be seen, you know, if we'll study that or, you know, if that'll be revealed through study. Um, but, you know, I think I feel, would feel comfortable saying that exercising, is likely to improve academic performance, um, particularly in folks who are would otherwise not be meeting the physical activity guidelines. Yeah, and I, as I have said in other contexts on this podcast, I am skeptical that such an optimal dosage and formulation will be found. I think sure. it is like so many other things, just going to be really Super individual. individual. Yeah, yep. mechanism wise, and I know you love to opine on mechanisms. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is interesting though. So it's like, okay, is it, you know, we, we know that there are a myriad of health benefits associated with exercise, right? So is it, is it just the improved health that results in improved academic performance? You know, so it's like an indirect thing or is it like, okay, maybe it's a mental health improvement driving this improvement in academic performance. Obviously both things can be true. Or improve sleep quality. For example, we know that people who exercise before bed, people are like, I have a tough time going to sleep after I work out. We're like, yeah, that's pretty well documented in, in individuals who are sensitive to that. But even if it takes you longer to go to sleep, we know that your sleep efficiency, like the sleep efficiency goes down because you're spending more time awake in bed, but your time to get into deep sleep is actually faster uh, after exercise. Um, there's also this other kind of social factor, maybe uh, people who are in different socioeconomic status, different classes, uh, they're bridging that gap by exercising alongside other people. So they're making relationships they might not otherwise make, or if they're all the same, maybe they're bonding amongst their cohort. There's could, there's potential social influence there. I don't know. I kind of view it as a black box. It's like exercise goes in and outcomes like improved. <laughs> generally, generally good things, come generally out. good things come out. Yeah. And like whatever's <laughs> happening on the inside, we don't know all of it, but we don't need to know all of it. It's yeah. interesting, but like, we don't necessarily need to know like the why. But it is, I'm curious though. I don't know, what do, you, what do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, there may be one, you know, more of one component of it that is a little bit more of a quote unquote active ingredient compared to another. And I can see a situation in which that might be useful to know um, if you wanted to like hammer that a little bit more. But the mm-hmm. same thing, man, like this is probably, there's probably different mechanisms that are at play It just more or less degrees for different people, you know? Um, so I am skeptical that there will be a, a, you know, one, one simple answer to any of this stuff. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Until next time. Uh, okay. So that has to do with like academic performance actually measured in academic settings, uh, memory 
as another factor that people are concerned with. Um, so the brain preserves and stores acquired information, and this enables us to perform an action or recall the fact. Uh, the overwhelming majority of studies show improvements in working memory, recall, and similar tests of memory with both chronic and acute exercise exposures. So they've got everything from like literally a three-minute high-intensity interval training thing, and then they have people take a test or they have people take the test and do that afterwards and then retake a similar test the next day that shows benefits they show chronic exercisers uh also do better than people who are physically you know insufficiently active the there's a caveat here and this is something interesting that i kind of want to get dr baraki's take on is that it looks like high intensity exercise right before the test is not good for test taking that people tend to do a little bit worse. There's like a transient decline in cognitive ability right after high intensity exercise. And so the way I think about it, it's like, Austin, if I had you do a heavy SBD workout and you were like, man, that was tough. You rated it session RPE 10. And then you got to go take step one. And you're like, <laughs> I'm a little tired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I buy that, I think. <laughs> yeah. But overall, the intensity data is not really that clear with respect to timing. I mean, there's so many studies on like, all right, we did this an hour before, 30 minutes before, directly before, directly after. And they're trying to like optimize the timing of the exercise. The inter most interesting thing I saw, or I guess second most interesting interesting thing I saw, had it, it, it really seemed to parallel the vaccination uh, sort of thing where we saw like when people got a vaccine and then they exercise afterwards, it sort of raises the uh, immune systems function, the immunogenicity of the vaccine. People got a more robust response if they exercised after receiving a vaccine. And uh -huh. so it appeared that when people exercised after learning stuff, they seemed to do a little bit better with recalling it. And I don't know if it's, again, if it's a blood flow thing, if it's like an endorphin thing, endocannabinoid system thing and whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does seem like exercising afterwards seemed to be net benefit. Uh, you know, again, if the first, if your first goal is making sure that people meet the physical activity guidelines and then you're like, but I really want to hammer in this memory thing, maybe doing it after you learn something if, if you can, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think back to my experience and, and going through, you know, college swimming training, we were routinely, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, every, you know, all those mornings we were doing hard workouts as well as afternoon sessions. And and I don't know that I felt impaired by those things because it's not like I had a choice to not do those training <laughs> right. sessions. And even if I had to go take a, you know, a chemistry test or something afterwards, but if I had my druthers, as, as you tend to say, hey. uh, and, and my self-selected kind of training pattern, as I mentioned, like back in med school, I was always training, you know, mid to late afternoon after doing most of my studying for the day. And I, and it would kind of trail off. And I was not like somebody who would study much later into the evening. I would get the majority of it done during the, during the daytime. Um, and, uh, definitely some of my most <laughs> look, some of the sessions that I looked forward to the most were ones after like a, a big prep phase for a test and then knocking the test out and doing, doing a, a session afterwards was, was typically, you know, something I look forward to quite a bit. So that's just probably a, to a significant extent, personal preference and like what I kind of self-selected and gravitated towards. I wouldn't generalize that to recommend everybody, but you know, um, if somebody else, somebody else could give the same anecdote and say, yeah, I got through by getting up and training in the morning. That was like my favorite sure. time to do this. And I loved the, you know, crisp fall weather and getting out and doing my thing or whatever. And it's yeah. like, okay, cool. You know, do your thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if any sort of like short-term transient decline that you're seeing is more fatigue related to anything yeah. else than anything else. And that again, it can be mitigated with enough time or yeah, enough training. Adapt. Yeah. You just get used to it. Yep. Uh, mechanism wise. And again, I know that you love <laughs> these mechanisms. 
I just I just got into the weeds because this is fascinating to me. So yeah, we think we know that we can increase hippocampal volume. And that's like this primary source of like, all right, you're going to retain information, make new uh, synapses, prune other ones or whatever. It seems like there's significant neurogenesis. So development of new neurons that are signaled via BDNF secondary to lactate in the blood. Uh, so effectively, when you exercise, one of the uh, metabolic byproducts is lactate, not lactic acid. It's lactate and then hydrogen ions separately. Lactate lactate's actually a fuel that ends up going back to the liver to create glucose via the Cori cycle. That's Cori with an I. I have, you don't need to know any of that, but I just wanted to flex a little bit of my metabolic knowledge here on air so you guys know that I'm not an actual idiot. But you still got it. <laughs> still got it. Uh, so yeah, the neurogenesis uh, in the hippocampus secondary to lactate seems to stimulate neuron and glial cell formation. Also neurotrophic factors, again, BDNF goes up also seems to be driven by lactate, um, an improvement in brain circulation due to increased blood flow in the cerebrovascular uh, system. That's just a fancy way of saying the vascular system of the blood vessels in the brain. Um, so you get an increased clearance of waste products, delivery of fuel, uh, maybe just less infarcts too, you know, like as people go age, you know, it's, Obviously, Not having is, strokes is generally good. Generally good. W would recommend. <laughs> um, this The other few interesting things. So when you exercise, like you walk into the gym and you're like, show me my opponent. Your first thing that happens, your pupils are going to dilate secondary to sympathetic nervous system outflow, that fight or flight. And then your heart rate's going to go up. Blood pressure's going to go up. You're basically doing all of these things. Um, and uh, a lot of that fight or flight sort of uh, system activation has to do with energy uh, liberation, basically preparing your body to do some work. Um, these are catecholamines, so noradrenaline or norepinephrine and adrenaline uh, or epinephrine. Uh, these are in the periphery. They do not cross the blood brain barrier. And so, so it's not like you get an increase in norepinephrine in the periphery and then it increases in your brain. However, there does seem to be a mechanism by which increased norepinephrine in the periphery does stimulate norepinephrine release in the brain and that appears to be involved in learning and memory which kind of makes sense because you if you need to learn stuff to like you know save your life <laughs> you, you probably want to store those things um same thing and the endocannabinoid system um these are the endocannabinoids are elevated during exercise and these uh, these uh, compounds are linked with reduced anxiety inflammation oxidative stress and waste product deposition in the brain appears to be a dose-dependent relationship between exercise volume and endocannabinoid levels. So again, another, you know, plus one for uh, meeting or exceeding the physical activity guidelines. Uh, and then the last thing is something we've talked about a lot in our seminars has to do with myokines. And there's a bunch of different myokines. Um, we don't need to name all of them here, but things like irisin, for example, uh, basically they stimulate BDNF release, which we all already know is uh, seems to be an important thing with increasing size of certain brain structures, increasing neural connectivity. And then also uh, myokines are involved in insulin sensitivity. So how well your body's using blood sugar. So again, there's like direct and indirect effects that seems to go on at every step of the way. And uh, overall, I just found that stuff interesting. Like how is this happening? And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. You exercise, generate some lactate, get some BDNF flow and some endocannabinoids, uh, become a little more sensitive to insulin. Seems like a net win. Yep. So the TLDR, or again, too long didn't listen, 
meet the physical activity guidelines or exceed them for both adults and kids. And then people are thinking, all right, well, the dip, the recommendations have to be different for kids. And it's like, yeah, they actually recommend more resistance training instead of twice weekly resistance training. They recommend three times per week resistance training. And I think, I believe the latest guidelines, which are from a guy named Dr. Avery Fagenbaum, <laughs> not related, not related. Uh, but I believe, I believe they're from 2009 and, uh, yeah, we can link those uh, in the description below. I know, uh, Dr. Miles is, uh, he's a fan. He's a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> big fan. I wonder why, why do you think the, there's three times per week for kiddos and then twice weekly for adults? Uh, I would just be making stuff up, honestly. Yeah. Like, I right. just yeah. wonder about like how maybe how much of a of a dose of stimulus they're able to generate for themselves per session or something like that. I don't maybe. know. Maybe I believe it starts at four years old, though, too. So it's like if you're four or over, you're like you you know, lift some weights. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be on a program. Like you don't have to start them on the beginner program, for example. But like, yeah, some exposure. Have them hang out with you in the gym. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. All right, moving on. So that was exercise and cognitive outcomes for those who are otherwise healthy. Let's talk about exercise on cognitive outcomes in those with cognitive impairment. Now, Austin, you wrote a pretty lengthy section <clears throat> on all of these things in our up-to-date article. Um, so we're just going to rehash some of that here. First off, when we talk about cognitive outcomes, cognitive function refers to higher level functions of the brain, including things like learning, perception, attention, judgment, decision-making, processing speed, task switching, memory, all of these things. It's like this umbrella term for like every important thing that your brain does at a higher level, not just like controlling your breathing or like telling you that all you're the things above uh, all the things that happen above your lizard brain. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, would it be fair to say, I mean, do you view like mild cognitive impairment and dementia, like on a spectrum sort of thing? Or like, how do you, how do you yeah. explain this? Yeah, that's, you? that's typically how it's conceptualized. I mean, the, the cognitive function in general is a gigantic spectrum. There are, you know, obviously like mega geniuses out there. And then there are the rest of us, quote unquote, normal people. And, and then, you know, there is this, there are, there are detectable degrees of impairment that we use some of these standardized measures for um, in, in clinical practice. And I alluded to some of them earlier. Um, they've, they've come up, they actually came up during, uh, I think the former, uh, president's term <laughs> relating to things like the mini mental status exam and the MOCA test and the slums are all different examples of these things. Um, and so they are standardized, uh, testing measures that are used to assess various aspects of all the things that you just described, describe cognitive function, be it things like attention, judgment, you know, uh, processing various things, uh, uh things like that. So, um, the the idea of mild cognitive impairment it 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 kind of is like we have similar concepts in other disease states where there's kind of like a a almost a subclinical or a preclinical kind of state where it is not massively impacting somebody's day-to-day -day function but it is detectable on these on these kind of things so it can be pretty subtle and as i mentioned earlier it could be actually completely not detectable if you just like are hanging out with somebody and conversing with them rather if you put them through one of these formalized assessments, you may actually see um, a degree of impairment that may surprise you, or it may be specific to a particular domain of cognitive function. And that may relate to like which area of their brain may be impacted by this if there is a kind of uh, regional, you know, disease process going on, or if, or if they have, you know, a stroke affecting a very particular area that can impair very particular functions and things like that. Yeah, I think I remember in like neuroanatomy, it was like localized the lesion, and they'd give you like a number of symptoms, and you'd be like, Oh, it's here on the parietal lobe. 
And, and like, but that line of thinking like has to stop at neuroanatomy, like, and you can't transfer that to other, you know, pathologies necessarily that are much more complex. Not, not to say that neurology and neuroanatomy is not complex, but it's just like, you can't like necessarily localize the lesion if someone's having like generalized shoulder pain, for example, you're like, oh yeah, this one area. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the whole art of, I guess, what we do in practice with respect to like differential diagnosis. And I use that phrase a lot with my residents and my, my learners. If somebody's having, you know, hypoxia or something, then I talk about local, we can, we have ways of localizing that. Whereas other things, these kind of real, like I'm tired. Yeah. I can't, <laughs> I yeah, probably yeah. can't localize that for you unless it's something very simple, like you have bad anemia or something like that. Mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, so that's kind of the approach and the thought process to, uh, you know, uh, patients with mild cognitive impairment. And then in the more advanced severe stages is what people uh, think of as dementia, but even dementia is a broad umbrella term. Um, it encompasses a bunch of different uh, conditions um, that have different, you know, driving causes, different manifestations, different demographics that they hit. So this is all a pretty complicated area. And so the reason I lay that out is so that it is unsurprising when studied, uh, you might see, you know, that that tends when, when you inter when you when you study an intervention for something that is so heterogeneous, uh, it will often tend to bias things towards the null, so to speak, mm -hmm. meaning that you will tend to a lot of the stuff might come out in the wash. And, and so that's not super surprising when we look at in those who have existing cognitive impairment, you know, exercise research on them, it is not groundbreaking on their day-to-day -day function. Unfortunately, we have nothing that is groundbreaking for patients with, with cognitive impairment or, or dementia. Even the drugs that we have don't really work yeah. um, to, a, to a significant extent. And, and so part of that may be it's a hard condition to impact based on our current you know, state and technology. And then another thing would be, again, how selective are you in this study as far as like, have you really teased apart? Do we really know whether these patients who have cognitive impairment of some kind or, or dementia, do they all have the same kind or is it mm -hmm. different kinds that may end up kind of le leading things to kind of come out in the wash? Yeah, it, it, it's unsurprising, though, that exercise in general has a positive effect, but it is smaller than you would otherwise hope for just due to, again, all the different you know, actual etiologies here. But, but I think it should be said that our base assumption is that exercise improves basically everything in every person period. Right. And it's like, what you want to figure out is, is exercise having some sort of impact on the actual pathology itself, or is it just improving everything else globally? Right. So even if it has no effect on the actual cognitive impairment, if it's improving somebody's ability to do their activities of daily life or improving their ability to otherwise function, you know, mostly independently or something like that, that's a net benefit, but it may not actually be improving their mild cognitive impairment. And I think a lot of times in the studies that where people have, you know, a, re a really gnarly case of cognitive impairment or dementia or whatever, then you don't see a real benefit in the standardized test that we use to diagnose these things or, or measure like how people are doing. Yeah. It's not that exercise didn't improve their life. It just didn't necessarily affect the course of the disease, you know? Okay. So yeah, overall for mild cognitive impairment, dementia, we see a small effect of, of exercise. Uh, again, whether that's a direct effect on the cognitive impairment or just again, global function, hard to tease out. And that's just because when you do these studies, you cannot recruit a thousand people with the same exact mild cognitive impairment. And then again, the exercise, God, the freaking exercise that people are doing it, this is really, it's annoying to me. They're like, like nobody is really doing uh, resistance training uh, and aerobic training combined that would meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines. They're doing like 
pretty underdose stuff plus like a they call it like a, a dual task exercise where it's like you got to walk across the room balancing a marble on a spoon and you're like what <laughs> like that's like an occupy like occupational therapy type thing like all right we're trying yeah. to improve a specific skill that you may have to do in day-to-day life but like where's the leg press at where's you know or, yeah. or if they can't do leg press where's the leg extension if they can't do that like what's the, where's the manual resistance there where's that stuff anyway i'll get off my horse uh okay next big thing and this is uh probably one of the more important things we'll actually talk about has to do with stroke now austin for the listeners at home can you give a generalized definition of like what is a stroke what are some you know risk factors we know to be uh present for stroke sure stroke is a situation where uh, you end up with brain tissue some of the cells that you talked about earlier in whatever region that end up effectively getting killed or die due to a lack of uh, blood flow, a lack of oxygen delivery. Um, it, this happens for a whole variety of reasons. There are multiple different kinds and types of stroke, um, often due to the formation of a blood clot or a blood clot that ends up kind of lodging in blood vessels that impairs blood flow to the brain tissue that that, um, that blood vessel would normally feed with oxygen. And so the cells get starved of oxygen and they kind of die. So it's kind of similar to a heart attack. Um, what people think about a heart attack, you know, a clot, a blockage, so to speak, lack of blood flow with oxygen, and then the heart muscle dies. This is a similar kind of phenomenon just in, in brain tissue, which is uh, less forgiving than, than heart tissue. You know, brain attack never caught on. It would be a solid name, but I just feel like easy to, yeah, heart attack. (laughs) Okay. So what does the data say about exercise with respect to like what what happens after a stroke? Because we know, and again, I just should go without saying that exercise reduces the risk of having a stroke via direct and indirect mechanisms. Basically, since it improves your health globally, improves cardiovascular health and all these sort of things. Yes, exercise reduces the risk of having a stroke. But what if you had one, someone you uh, loved one has one, what does exercise do in that sort of yeah. Post-stroke period. It is critically important for the vast majority of patients who are able to do it. Now, I will say that, you know, the brain is complicated. As we've said, it has a whole bunch of different areas. These different areas do different functions, and you can have a stroke affecting any one of these different areas. And so strokes can manifest with different things. So some people can have strokes that affect their their speech or their swallowing ability or their sensation or their vision or their you know ability to think um, or their you know motor function in a particular area of their body. So it could be their arm more than their leg or their leg more than their arm or both or a whole side of their body or you know whatever the case is. So it's very again heterogeneous, really variable. Currently treating you know a couple patients with this issue as as we speak. So it is unfortunately quite common. Um, now, in the aftermath of a stroke, um, getting patients moving um, is extremely important, as it is in most kind of acute medical medical conditions. And this is for a variety of reasons. Not only are there changes that happen in the brain tissue after a stroke, but there's actual uh, structural and metabolic changes in the muscle itself after a stroke. You know, you start having muscular atrophy, um, differences, uh, changes in the metabolic function of the muscle, uh, the expression of certain genes and proteins and things like that. And all of this can lead to progressive muscle loss, muscle wasting. Of course, this leads to impaired function and ultimately to disability. Um, And that's obviously what we would prefer to minimize. Of course, our our top priority would be preventing as many strokes as we can. But if somebody is going to have one, um, we want to minimize as much as possible the the disabling impact that it has on their lives so they can continue doing the things they they want to do. Um, and so most patients uh, after a stroke will end up in some form of uh, a stroke rehab. Um, although I will say that um, 
uh, it can be pretty variable as far as the quality of stroke rehab that patients get, the intensity of it they get, the duration of it they get, um, and 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 exactly what the formulation and dosage of that exercise tends to be. But the evidence we have seems to show that progressive strength training is is feasible, it's safe, it's effective for improving muscle strength and, and reducing functional limitations um, in patients who have had a stroke in both their limbs that may be affected by the stroke and, of course, in their limbs that are, you know, uh, unaffected, like their, their other side, um, if it's a, you know, a lateralized kind of process like that. So, of course, as with other things that we see, the higher the intensity of the intervention in terms of dosage, the, the bigger effects that we see. And these benefits tend to persist at, at long-term follow-up, even if the ongoing high-intensity activity is not necessarily continued. But if you can intervene relatively early with that from a rehab standpoint, get people exercising, strength training, you know, dosing it sufficiently um, to generate the adaptations you're looking for, then that tends to be a very good thing on their, their long-term outcomes. Yeah. And just, uh, for the folks listening at home that are like, are, are there guidelines? Yes, there are guidelines and we will, uh, for stroke rehab, um, we'll post, put them in the description below. But interestingly, the general aerobic exercise guidelines post-stroke are to do aerobic exercise three to five days per week, gradually increase the duration of exercise from 20 to 40 minutes over time. And these can be obtained in multiple 10 minute bouts across the day. They want those to be done at a moderate intensity. Um, they also want people to lift weights two to three days per week with the, uh, doing one to three sets of 10 to 15 reps per exercise, trying to do eight to 10 exercises and starting somewhere between 30 to 50% of a one RM and going up from there. Now you're not testing one RM and these people. So, you know, <laughs> 10 out of 10 would not recommend doing that, but would recommend using, uh, RPE or, you know, otherwise it should be very manageable. Cause again, if you're thinking about doing a set of 15 at 50% of your one RM, that should be like eight to 10 RIR. I mean, it shouldn't be that it shouldn't get people close to failure. That's for yeah. later on, but yep. yeah, there are guidelines here and we'll link them in the description below. There's also uh, guidelines for the next disease process we'll talk about, which is Parkinson's disease. Uh, so Austin, you want to talk about Parkinson's disease? Just what is that briefly? And then what does exercise say about it? Yeah. So briefly it's a quote unquote neurodegenerative condition. There's a particular there are particular areas of the brain um, that are involved in the planning and initiation and kind of uh, uh, patterning of movement. And so when these areas uh, kind of degenerate for reasons that we do not have a great explanation for in, in a lot of folks, um, then movement becomes a challenge. So it is broadly categorized as a movement disorder. So these patients can have a, a tremor. They can have uh, difficulty initiating movement. When they do get moving, it tends to be oftentimes slow um, in, in or, or have various other uh, uh, kind of characteristic features to it that are probably beyond the scope of, of our discussion when it comes to, to diagnosis. So broadly speaking, it's a movement disorder um, and it can be progressive. Uh, it typically is progressive and it can be obviously progressively disabling um, the more the more challenging it becomes to initiate and, and execute movement. And so when it comes to um, uh, resistance exercise in particular and exercise in general, we do tend to see some benefits on their function for sure. Uh, because there's, you know, impairment, there can be impairments in posture and, 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 uh, their gait that can lead to a significant increase in, in the risk of falls and other things. And so, um, definitely we see improvement in those functional kind of characteristics, those aspects when um, these patients are exercised. Of course, as with all the other topics we've talked about so far, the studies on this uh, seem to show, seem to involve very different interventions, heterogeneous interventions. And again, that tends to lead to the outcome effects that we see kind of 
coming out in the wash in a lot of situations. Um, but they can, just like anybody else, they can gain strength, they can gain muscle mass, they can gain endurance, they can improve their, you know, mobility, not like stretchy mobility is, of course they can, but that's not what we're talking about, but their ability to get around and, and do their day-to-day tasks which is all great news for folks who are suffering from this condition. The bad news is that this, the way that this has that effect is not necessarily by like regrowing these areas of brain tissue that have been impacted by Parkinson's. So we don't see, you know, oh, they're, they're dopaminergic neurons in the basal ganglia that are, that are affected sprouting back, back to normal. It's, it's kind of like what you said earlier, it's, it's benefiting them by building up other aspects that are not affected by the primary condition such that they can, you know, improve or maintain their function for, for a bit longer. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the way I view that Parkinson's and uh, mild cognitive impairment all the way up to dementia, as far as exercise effects, like on people's function, quality of life, et cetera, it's like you're giving them more tools in their toolbox to effectively compensate and live a mostly normal sort of life. Uh, effectively, they have more options, more strategies for movement um, and for interfacing with their environment that they otherwise would not have because they were not training. Um, yes, with stroke rehab, you're getting some increased like signaling to the motor cortex to like develop new connections and this, that, and the other. But as far as like treating the underlying disease so much uh, with Parkinson's in particular, yeah, you're probably not doing anything to the, you know, striatum that, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, it's, it's important to say like, we're, we're not trying to, you know, dissuade people from exercising who have Parkinson's just because it doesn't like affect the the disease process itself. It's just like, we don't want to put out information that's wrong and say exercise prevents Parkinson's yeah. <laughs> or like reverses Parkinson's is like, now, nah, but it'll make you better if you have it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're actually going to do a separate podcast for probably the big topic that people want to know with respect to exercise and sort of brain function, at least the way people view it. Although that would be a slightly reductionist kind of view of what, uh, you know, different mood disorders are. So things like depression, anxiety, et cetera, we'll do a whole nother podcast uh, on that, uh, where we can detail the ins and outs and the nuances, if you will, on how exercise affects those things. But, uh, I think the take home here, as we wrap this up, um, overall, we would want everybody to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines, whether that's if you're an adult and you're seeking like, you know, uh, staving off mild cognitive impairment, if you're thinking about, uh, performance on the job site, or if you're in, you know, school right now and, uh, improving academic performance or for your kids, like, all applies here. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of inconsistencies in the literature, just again, due to the various types of exercise interventions, uh, the various types of testing, the various uh, different subject characteristics, and again, exercise being just grossly underdosed in a lot of these studies. So yeah, most of the study results, especially when pulled together in a meta-analysis, it's like, oh, not as big of an effect as uh, we prefer to see, not as exciting of information. But that doesn't mean that exercise cannot have a profound effect on people's uh, quality of life uh, in their uh, day-to-day function and just overall uh, sort of health. And so 10 out of 10 would recommend, even if a meta-analysis says small to modest benefit. Like To me, that doesn't really encapsulate the improvements that somebody can have in their life if they're able to function mostly independently or completely independently, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mechanistically, I think it's interesting and we'll continue to suss these things out and I can't wait to report more on these things, but I, I don't think that's where the focus should be. If you are 
a practitioner, meaning that I don't think you need to tell somebody, yeah, we need to do resistance training because it's going to increase your BDNF levels. Yeah. Rather, I would focus more on like, yeah, if you exercise, you're likely to improve your health uh, overall related to different risks of things like stroke, uh, at risk of things like uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, uh, and overall having this, you know, keep making deposits in your physical 401k so that if something should happen later on in life, well, when you make a withdrawal, you're not on it. You're not on E. You're not uh, getting that overdraft. Uh, is, that, is that too many metaphors? I think I, think I did too. <laughs> like just too many. It was like four hundred one k overdraft. Like uh, how, many can I, how many can I do? Uh, anything else you want people to take home from this? No, I think we covered it. Train. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> if that was not clear. Yeah, should train. So all of the studies that we talked about and referenced here and guidelines and stuff are linked in the description below. Also links to our uh, seminars if you want to join us for a live in-person learning event. Uh, T-shirts, again, the sale. Uh, you can use BBM10. Take 10% off all of the apparel that we're closing out for the new drop hits uh, probably towards the end of November. And make sure to check out our new YouTube videos and new uh, articles on our website. All in the description below. This has been episode 198 on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining us. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Mm-hmm.